Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. There's three things you can't buy right now bikes, puppies, and garden heaters. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Notion Capital Go-To-Market Heroes podcast. It's a beautiful day in London and in England. Well, I say that we're recording in advance. I'm sure you guys realize that. So I hope I'm not jinxing it for when you guys are hearing this. <laughs> but I'm sure it will still be beautiful as uh, we'll be about to get into the summer when this is released, which also means almost full end of the lockdown for those of us who are in the UK and hopefully for all the rest of you as well. So for today, though... Being on the last floor of my house in my home TV studio makes me feel like I'm in Dubai because the temperatures are rising. Obviously, that's the presence of Andy. The temperatures is always rising when Andy is around and he's with me, as always. And as always, I'm going to ask him one question to start with. It's not going to be about music. It's not going to be about computers. Though I'm still curious if you were able to make your Welsh computer with early serial number work. Uh, general question, one that actually you are often asking our guests. What do you see in the market today that excites you? Good question, Paul. But to answer your first question, my Dragon 32, I tried to buy a power supply on eBay for it. It's more than the computer. So I don't I don't know if I'm ever going to get around <laughs> to powering that thing up, but we'll give it a go. So what excites me? So I am still very, very fascinated by the whole AI, ML business continuum. And I think business models there still have a ways to go. So we've got some early successes of companies like Palantir, which are now public, and I think are kind of defining that side of things. Then there's a whole market in self-service for AI, ML companies. And in the middle, there's this kind of burgeoning scene of people solving industry problems. And I just last week was talking with a, a number of different people, particularly around AI biases. You know, how do we yeah. create AI that doesn't just continue the biases in people? So it's just a fascinating space. And I think visual AI seems to be reasonably advanced. And then right behind that, in terms of how people use data in a real-time nature for time sequence data, that's the next thing, particularly self-drive cars, et cetera. You know, there's just so much space in that market to go. So in pure Andy fashion, with your love of the 80s, you're fascinated by what Cyberdine Systems is building, otherwise known as SkyNet. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that was a bad joke. So let's go on looking ahead and looking at the market. Who is our hero of the day, Andy? Well, I am thrilled that we're joined by David Quantrell with us today. I'm going to intro him quickly, and then we'll kind of unpick some of this as well. So I've known David for a number of years now, and I think it's fair to say that although we've not worked together, we've certainly spent a lot of time together and our careers have followed parallel paths in some places. So just kind of cherry picking back, a lot of VP EMEA and senior VP roles, Nortel running HP software is the VP EMEA there as well, McAfee, the president of EMEA, Box, senior VP EMEA. And now, and this is the bit also that we want to get to in our chat, is a lot of board, either board advisory on the board or chair positions with young growing companies. So David, welcome to the podcast. Andy, great to be with you. Pleasure to have you. So all those, there's a lot of senior roles there, by the way. So you, you've carried some kind of hefty loads and I'm sure hefty targets along the way. 
was this accident design? How did you end up taking this career path? You know, it's interesting. When I first moved into sales, I moved out of a technical environment. When I first moved into sales, I was kind of inspired by the guys who, you know, were saying, set the vision, set the, you know, your direction. And I literally had every year, I reviewed my five goals for the year. And I used to, uh, back in those days, because you used to carry them, I had a briefcase. And on the inside of my briefcase, I would have the five goals for where I needed to be and what the milestones were and the three-year plan and that kind of stuff. So I actually did do it. I did do it for the first part of the, you know, my career, right the way through till I took my first head of Europe role. And from then on, it's kind of, you know, the directions kind of open up. There's so many possibilities. And what I found was I then set my goals to be more about what do I want to develop in myself this year? So it sort of changed a little bit. So I guess some of it, absolutely very driven in that sort of early stage of getting things done. And then more driven by, you know, what are my skills and what are my qualities now? How do I add value really? So I guess a mixture of both really. And I would say with all of that, it was always the left field opportunity that came in that was the most exciting. And of all of the jobs I took, I think the vast majority came left field. I didn't see them coming. And did you always feel that you were going to go into a go-to-market sales type job? Or was that kind of the accident that happened? No, that was the accident, I guess. Um, I was late going to university. I left school at 16 with no qualifications. So I actually had to go back to night school, got my qualifications, and then did my technical degree. And all I wanted to do was design stuff. I was a hardware engineer. So all I wanted to do was design leading edge stuff and be involved in that. And I did it for two years. I was designing naval weapons, uh, radars. And so these were 12-year projects or whatever to see them through. And I suddenly realized my horizon was not that long. And I realized also that the commercial world is, I just found it fascinating. You know, we were selling, I mean, we were selling ships to people with, you know, fully configured systems on and, you know, very complex sales cycles. And I just thought the commercial world was fascinating. And at that point, I decided that was where I wanted to go next. I didn't know that about you, by the way, about the leaving school at 16. So that's news to me. Yeah. And then who really on that journey invested in you? Was there a person that kind of took you under their wing and invested in you? Was there a training course? Was there a company? How did that come about? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. All through my career, I would say in each of my roles, I've had people that I would say I looked up to, admired. I think in my early stage, you know, moving into the commercial world particularly, there was one sales leader there that, you know, just inspired me. He, he was the archetypal sales leader of, you know, building a team, highly, you know, motivating the team the whole time. And I was the youngest guy in the team. He was an interesting blend of, you know, if you had a problem, you had to go figure out how to fix the problem, take it to him, and he'd review it with you. If you ever went into his office with a problem, he'd throw you straight back out. And to me, you know, he came through that sort of, uh, you know, incel education route, you know, the Andy Grove kind of environment, very disciplined, very structured. And he brought that to bear, but at the same time had that kind of inspirational air about him. And I think at each stage, I found people that I thought they're interesting. They weren't always my boss. And the more senior you get, I think, in your roles, quite often the person you find inspirational is not your boss. But uh, certainly in that stage, as I made the commercial step, he was a tough leader. He was a tough boss, but it really teed me up for the jobs that were ahead. So, uh, you know, very much uh, remember him. I'd lunch with him actually about three years ago, and I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And it was great to catch up. But thank goodness for people like that to put the time in and uh, put the effort in, you know? Yeah. 
and you've held these VP Europe and senior VP titles. What was the moment that stepped you up to that level? Because, you know, to me, I always find, you know, moving from individual contributor to first level manager, that's always a tough move. And then moving up your first VP role. But then when you take a whole territory, regional, geo or function, that's when it starts to get truly terrifying. What pushed you up to that level then? Or did, did you always want to be at that level? Oh, I always wanted to be at that level. I think as soon as I moved into the commercial world, I, I wanted to be at that level. I would point to a number of people over the years. And again, not particularly my boss. I started sales in Daisy Systems. We ended up in Chapter 11 through a, an acquisition that went badly wrong. And then from that, ended up in Intergraph. And there were a variety of people in Intergraph. Intergraph was kind of a bit of a dull old company in some ways, a billion-dollar business back then. And it did everything from tracking systems on missile weapon systems that were deployed in the first Gulf War to uh, electronic design systems. But there were odd people in there. There was a contracts manager in that company and probably in some ways the most dull person you could imagine. He was, you know, he was really logical, all the rest of it. I learned so much about the commercial world from that guy. And he was just quiet. He was in the background. He was disregarded by a lot of people. So a lot of the stuff and the structure around, you know, the legal pieces and the, you know, negotiation, he was a fantastic negotiator. And, you know, the whole be well briefed before you go, have a plan, all that kind of stuff. And he was he was great at it and people disregarded him. So between the, you know, sales at the beginning with Paul and then, you know, working through Instagraph, I was picking up skills from the different people. Chapter 11 was an education, fantastic education. We had a management company come in. And the one thing that you get from those companies is they are super focused. There is no kind of given tomorrow. They're working through a process of trying to get this thing into some kind of order. And you've got a relatively limited time to get it done. So I used to spend my lunch times talking to these guys. I just figure out, you know, what are you doing today? What's the plan? Where are you taking this stuff? And so I think it's a combination of those types of things on the way through. That when I first took my first European job was, uh, was with uh, Clarify. So I joined a company that were four of us in Europe. And there were no customers. So you have to go figure out what you're going to do. And there's no shade, right? I mean, typical US business. You've got lots of time as long as you do it this quarter, you know? And so we, you know, we started there. We built the team out and we went through the, you know, the first 10, which changes the dynamic. And then we went through, you know, the 50 and then the 100. And so we took that thing from, you know, zero to about 100 million in just over four years. And in Europe, that was. So, so that was the kind of first place. Uh, and I think that, you know, that was a lot of the, the groundwork. And then I got the shock because we sold it to Nortel and I stayed with the business. And suddenly I ended up running a division. You know, Nortel was, uh, I don't know, $40 billion business in Europe at the time. And I'm suddenly on the management team with a bunch of guys who are 15 years older than me. And I'm running a division that's now fairly substantial. We acquired four companies. And then we had our user events down in Barcelona. And suddenly you're the keynote for the whole event with five, 6,000 people in the audience. I'd never spoken to people like that, you know, at that scale before. So there was a whole nother bunch of learning to go through at that level. And I was then very fortunate to have a couple of people around me to steer me through it. I actually took a coach for the first time in my career, particularly around trying to present to those bigger audiences, which still isn't my kind of forte, really. And she was great. She'd worked with politicians. She worked with, you know, big folks in the industry. 
And so, you know, that was kind of another layer of skill sets. And I think that's the way it goes. You just end up layering on these skill sets as you go through it. You know, learning from people around you, learning from the... And again, not always your boss. It can quite often be someone disregarded in a business that you can learn the most from. Hey, so I personally, if you look at my background as well, you know, a lot of work with American companies. And I look down the list here, and you know, US, Canadian companies as well. I think European enterprise software for me wasn't very exciting up until about four or five years ago. You know, I felt like it had built one or two very big companies and lots of kind of mediocre companies. You're now working with a lot of European tech. What what changed for you? Why, why all of a sudden the switch to think, hey, I could grow the geo, the European geo of a very large organization or I can do homegrown stuff? Was there a moment where your attention shifted? I think totally, Andy. You know, the reason we worked for U.S. companies was – they were exciting, right? There, there was a kind of there was a nucleus of tech, and we got excited about it. And you had inspirational characters that actually had a lot of discipline to them as well. And I think that was a big part of it. And then, you know, I looked at my career as I, you know, left Box, and I was trying to figure out where did I spend the time. And I just see in Europe, and particularly in the UK right now, I just see that there is a massive change that's gone through. You know, the, the expectation now in Europe of building businesses is not let's, you know, let's get a couple of cycles in here and flog it to an American business. We actually have CEOs who want to go the distance and we have businesses that are credible. We actually have people who want to go take and learn the discipline and go all out for it. We had a lot of lifestyle businesses in our time, you know, in tech, and it wasn't for lack of looking at businesses in the European sphere that I stayed in US businesses. It was just they were more exciting. So I think there's been a shift. I think there's an opportunity now from funding perspective. I don't think we've ever seen the level of funding. Even in the dot-com boom, there wasn't the level of funding that you see today. And I don't think there was the understanding of tech. You know, you look at my first trip to Silicon Valley. I got off the plane and, you know, super excited, so fairly young. I got in the taxi cab. The guy asked me which company I worked for. And all we talked about from then on was stock. And this taxi driver knew all about stock in Silicon Valley. The UK hasn't been like that. But if you look at, you know, I talked to my son and his friends. They're all talking about, you know, well, which stocks, where should we be? How should we be investing? The mindset's changed. So I think we have the technical prowess. I think there's great opportunity. I think we've got people who really want to go ahead and, you know, make something global. And then I think we've got the funding in place and the expectation in place from the market in Europe and the UK to make it work. And so in that background, I just want to see where I can add value and see if we can build some of these big companies and any help I can be in doing that. That's what I want to do for the rest of my uh, time in, in the working environment. Well, that's what I was going to say. So you've got a ton of experience. And by the way, experience is always what works and what doesn't work. So I'm sure there's some scar tissue in there of, um, hey, you know, in my experience, that's not a really great idea. You're doing board work now, and a lot of board work. How does that feel? And you've worked with, we're just talking about American companies, you've worked with large American companies. Do you feel like now we're getting that, you talked about the funding, that level of business idea, that quality of leadership, that quality of board supervision, does that feel like now it's maturing and becoming a force in Europe, should we say? I, I think it is. I, I, I would plot, you know, the, the US boards, I think typically you've had practitioners on the board. You know, the folks in Greylock and et cetera, 
they are practitioners, the vast majority. They've got the experience in there as well as the investment experience. And so you you have that recipe, you know, kind of in place there. UK boards were more typically made up of folks who are trying to build a risk profile and manage the downside. And actually, I think there's been a significant shift, particularly in the tech boards, that we're now putting more practitioners in place because partly we have them. I mean, there's, there's a growing group of people who built businesses over here, but those practitioners are joining the boards. And that shifts the mentality, right? Because we are on that far part of the risk curve in terms of the businesses. And we should be. That's, that's what tech is about. But we should understand why we're there and how we kind of build. So I think there is a big shift. And I think, you know, the transition is very much obviously as, a, as an operator. I did a course recently with the IOD. I'm doing my director's exams just because I think I should. Uh, I've done this stuff for years, but it just feels like I should. And that one of the instructors said, you know, it's all about nose in, fingers out as a director. Now that is true if you're a non-exec director of a public board. And, you know, that's one of the roles I have is a public board. In an early stage tech company, you're probably a bit more fingers in, I think. You're less of an independence. And your role really has to be in, you know, helping shape things fairly detailed way. Not operational, but almost to the point of, you know, you're right in some of that, how do we implement these plans rather than just sitting looking at a strategy and letting people get on with it. So it shifts, I think, over the time. But I, I think we've seen that shift in boards. And I think there's just, I mean, you, you must have the same, Andy, right? I, I get weekly, I'll get a couple of boards who are looking for an operator. They're not looking for a legal or a finance guy. They're looking for an operator. And that is very, very different to, you know, five, 10 years ago, I think. I'm just thinking, so people listening to this now will be late seed, series A, possibly series B, maybe series C. So they're still kind of going through that kind of shaping of the business before they really get into growth. Some of them will be really getting to growth capital now, maybe. Any thoughts for them on terms of, you know, what should an early board look like and how should that evolve and what types of people, you talk about operators, you know, how should you put an effective board together to make it beneficial? I think that's a great question because you need very different characters. And I think you've got to be very precise about who you want on your board. To me, now there's lots of advice available and you can go lots of places to get advice, which can be transient. So you can go and apply a piece of advice to a a very specific situation. Your board is something different to that. These are people you want to live with for a period of time. And I think that's super important. I do think free Series A is a very, very different set of skills to, you know, beyond that. To me, that's the area that I would be weakest. And, And simply because you are in many ways still working through some of the product iterations. It's not so much about product market fit. You are looking in many cases for the technology and the potential solution. And you want to play a lot of games around, you know, does this work? Does that work? And for some companies, that is a very extended period. Depending on the complexity of technology, you know, that can run for a number of years. The last thing you want in your environment at that point is someone who's saying, well, how much are you going to sell tomorrow? Where's the, you know, so I think you've got to be really cognizant of the stage. As you kind of move into series A, series B, it's really about the, you know, can we now get that to customers in a repeatable way? And that is a different skill set again. 
again, you've been in this situation a lot, right? You can bring in experienced sales guys to that environment and they will fail miserably because what they're good at is just operationalizing what people have already found out. So they'll know how to take it. They don't know what they're taking and they don't know where they're taking it in many cases. So that is a very special area, that kind of repeatability where you really have to be getting very smart people around it. You've got some thesis about what the market is and you've got to be able to go and create black and white out of the gray in terms of you know what the market space is. And I've seen in many situations, people coming in to that situation and trying to use an old recipe. You know, I did this in my last comment. It doesn't work. You've got to figure out whether that is the same situation. You've got to figure out what the real customer base is. Back to my chapter 11 kind of piece. It's the urgent and important that you've really got to go focus on. So you've got scarce resource. That's it. Let's see if you can go win those things. Prove that and move on and build a sales team and take them with you. And then you move into the kind of scale. And that's a whole different phase again. So, you know, getting your scaling guys in beyond that. Now, that's very prescriptive. And some people go the whole distance. I'm not very good at the early stage. Finding fit, scaling, that's where I fit. And I can take that a long way, you know, from billion-dollar businesses where we've been growing really fast. But you have to decide what those people are. So you want on your board people who can help you at each of those stages And I think then it's down to a mix of things. I think for a board, you want people who can either add some skill set. So that could be the, you know, how do we build a finance? How do we go for funding? All those kinds of things. And how do we drive the compliance? It could be the operational skills. It could be the network. And in certain businesses, that network piece is super important in the first stages. So I think it's picking off which of those, which of the phases you're at, and then trying to match that up with people you actually like working with because your board don't go away, right? So, um, and you will have one or two kind of discretionary slots on a board. So I think formalizing your board, obviously series A, then you start to kind of take you know people forward with you. And you've then got to be cognizant of, do you need to add something or, you know, but be very sparing with people you add to your board because they are there for a period of time. There's a whole load in there, but just two things that jump out at me as you were speaking. So a lot of founders and CEOs tend to be technical people. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that they're not always comfortable talking to go to market people because they like, well, we, I think we speak different languages. You know, I I think I understand what you're talking about, but not quite. And I was just thinking how you compensate, not maybe compensate is not the right word, but balance that on a board to make sure that you have that balance between a overtly technical founding team versus, you know, the need to scale. And how to think about those types of people on your board to make sure that you are, yes, you've, you're still thinking about the product and the innovation and the direction, but you're also thinking about, hey, how do we scale this from a go-to-market perspective? I think that's a, an interesting one, trying to balance off the various skills, because you will end up with, of course, your investors who are investors and still probably have not many of them being operators, but they will have an opinion. And then you'll have, you know, as you say, technical people that you want for a very specific reason. I think the character of the board members is is important. So as well as that kind of go-to-market skill set you want to add, I think you want to look at the characteristics of the individual. So if I'm an individual that's struggling to have moved out of the operator position and I'm sitting on the board, that can be super destructive. And particularly with a founder who's taken this through, you know, the really hard days, in many cases, you know, have 
bet the farm, as it were, on on the business, and maybe multiple times, and maybe struggling to make payroll and all all those things. They've done all of that, and sometimes you can bring in people who you know are still trying to be operators and think they know how to run a go to market and they want to impose. You don't want that. This is a journey for the leadership team as well. And in a number of the businesses I'm involved with, we've actually brought coaching in, very specific coaching for the founders. I've had the pleasure of working with some interesting founders. Aaron Levy over at Box is a fantastic guy. But, you know, as I joined Box as what, probably one of the oldest members of the team anywhere in the world, Aaron was probably 25, but in his 25 years had raised more money than I'd ever raised. And so it's that kind of, look, there's a bunch of things I can bring to this. And we worked through strategy, you know. Aaron had 150 things he wanted, you know, done 150% of the energy all day long and getting to the, you know, five to 10 big things we've got to get done, driving that into a real strategy you could build and repeat and scale was an interesting journey, but the whole team went on it. And that's the same with, you know, a board. You want people who not only can consider the operating, but actually how can I help you get people alongside you that will help you go on that journey? And also knowing when to just be quiet. I mean, I remember with Aaron, we sat in a meeting and, you know, clearly when we set a box, you could regard OneDrive as like just head-to-head competition. We were going to get killed by the big giant that was going to roll over us. And Aaron just had a knack of meeting everyone in Silicon Valley. So he was meeting with uh, the CEO of Microsoft just after the transition had taken place. And his whole thing was he wanted to get the ability to get box reference from inside of Microsoft products. And my immediate reaction was, don't waste your time. You know, experience says it's not going to happen. That would have been the most stupid piece of advice I could have given him. He stayed at it. The whole change of regime of Microsoft, the open environments, meant that we did have the hooks into the tools. And I think that's true when you're working with founders. So you want to find board members that can bring skills, that can actually be complementary, but not trying to run your business for you. And at the same time, know when to be quiet. Because I think that's, that's a hard skill, especially when you're driven people that run businesses as well. And I'm sure you find the same, right? <laughs> I'm laughing, exactly. One other little area maybe you could give some advice on is, as later investors come in, they typically want to simplify the board. And what they really mean by that is, hey, all the minority shareholders and seed investors, how do we get them off the board? Yeah. And obviously, the early people who took the risk are like, no, 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 I don't want to I don't want to give up on my baby. You know, I, I took a risk on this. Any thoughts or advice on kind of how to manage that? Because the last thing you want is a board of like 20 people. You know, you've got to kind of shape it and make it fit for today and, and going forward rather than what was in the past. Yeah, I think you've really got to think about what you need now. And it's not an easy set of discussions to have, but you want a board that is contributing. And the more people in the room, I think you had one person, it's like an exponential curve. The more people you have in the room, you know, the more you get delayed or the more opinions that people want to have. So you want to have a compact board that is fit for purpose. And I actually think some of the guidance on boards in the UK is superior to the US. I actually think we're, we're quite good now at looking at board makeup and board effectiveness. And I think there's a lot of guidelines around that now that if you apply it in a 
not just a mechanical way, but if you apply it in the way of just looking for what are we really trying to achieve here and, you know, therefore, what's the contribution around the table? I think that is where you have to get to. And every couple of years, you really have to sit back and have that strategic view of looking at where the board is and where it needs to be, which means your chairman is super critical because they need to be able to galvanize the team around that They need to be able to facilitate the hard discussions and really shape it through. And again, you know, with US companies, a lot of times in the mid-stage private companies, there's less kind of involvement from a chairman. It depends, you know, a little bit on the shape. But I think we have a more mature view of a chairman in that stage of business in the UK than perhaps in the US. Later on, it develops, of course. But it's not unusual in the States to have a CEO and a chairman in the same role. I actually think that's not so great. I think it is actually good to have the division of responsibility. So have a great chairman that can kind of work that through. And, you know, hopefully have a chairman that goes with you, but is also prepared to step away, you know. I did a little bit of work many, many years ago with Brendan Mooney over at Kanos. And you look at the way that business has grown. When you look at the chairman who sat, you know, went through that, he went through from very early stages, John Lillywhite, and just had the maturity to take that business all the way through, you know, steered it through lots of stuff in the early days, I think, you know, quite tight for cash and all that kind of stuff. And then got it public and has, you know, seen it grow through and only stepped down literally probably a year and a half ago. So you would hope that you might be able to get a chairman that can take you a distance like that. But you really want to be able to think that through, think through the function, just as you would with a management team. And then have the sensible discussions with the minority investors to say, if you haven't got an additional set of function skills, we're going to ask you to step away. How I'm just thinking through, what is a chair role and how do you know you need one for a business? You know, Because I see companies of relatively progressed days that don't have a chair and then super early companies that do have a chair. Any thoughts as to when it's appropriate and what that role should be? I actually think... It is helpful to have a chair from fairly early stage, as long as you have the right chair. So I think it is helpful in terms of shaping the business and having that thought process. And the reason that I say that is because it is easy in the early stage of a business to just have a lot of advisors. The great thing about advisors is you can just ignore them if you want to. The chair role actually brings a little bit more, if you've put someone in a chair position, you're going to want to at least take a, a reasonable consideration and have a dialogue where you, you know, you can be pushed around a little bit on some of these things. So I would say once you really start to have a solution that's, uh, you know, has some shape to it, you really want to start thinking about having somebody in that business because it will help you shape. But again, super careful about what stage. And in the technology arena, I think the early stages, you really want to have someone who has some skill of operating the business. And in many cases, you know, you have this discussion about an exec chair, non-exec chair. You know, there is no distinction in the law between those two things. And the reality is, it just means you get a bit more involved from time to time. And I think in the early stage, quite often, you are more involved having very detailed discussions about certain things. And then great CEOs pick that up and just, I've got it. Now I get my people on that and we kind of move on because it's the lack of skills in the business sometimes that you're actually making up for. As you get a bit further on, really it's, you know, starting to get some of that discipline around the overall business and getting some structure around it and getting your, just the predictability in the stuff that should be there 
which frees up the team to do the more creative stuff. And I think a chair can often be helpful to do that and pulling you up into the you know, strategy and seeing if you're holding yourself accountable at that level. So I think it, it varies, but I think the earlier, the better that you have someone that you can you know, bounce those ideas off, but actually you are accountable to, to some extent. Got it. And you mentioned something earlier that, just to pick up on that, what's different about being on the board of a public company? How does that change things for you that, as a board member and for the company hiring a board member? Well, I, th- I think there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, clearly, a personal liability, although that doesn't change as a director to some extent, but it's more visible and there's more structure. You know, you are really accountable to the external shareholders in all the decisions you make. You're always accountable to shareholders, but the clarity of the communication to shareholders, the clarity of the way that you report, it just has to be a lot more structured and a lot more regulated. So, you know, getting that kind of the overall model in place for the business and bringing that predictability. So you you are giving people the information they should have. And, you know, as I say, the, the discipline of reporting, the time you're going to put into some of the compliance and those kind of efforts, it, it's just higher, you know, by definition, as opposed to a private company. Although there is a big push now to see more of that discipline moving into the private sectors to some extent. But it will never be to the extent of a full-on public company. I think that's probably the major differences. So personal liability figures big in your mind as well, right? <laughs> so you, you are on boards now. You've got a, a number of different companies you're working with. What's next? Anything exciting you? Is there anything out there you're looking at or trends, companies, peoples, things happening in Europe? You think, oh, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't mind getting involved in that. And in fact, maybe... Where you started, the things that you started talking about, I don't know, maybe they're curious for you as well as to where next. Yeah, you know, I am really happy with what I'm doing at this point. I really love the teams I'm working with. And, you know, I think I probably have room for one more to work with. But I want to see them go through a journey. You know, I want to see them go through, build value, do something that they'll be proud of in the future. Because that's a lot about what you want from working life, as well as delivering results. You've got to be able to look back and say, I really enjoyed that experience. And I still have teams who come back and do that. So that that's a big part of it. That's what I get excited about. I think the other side that I get excited about is not so much any specific technology. I am just super excited about the opportunity we have, and particularly in the UK. Europe, yes, particularly in the UK right now, because that's where I'm focused. We have a just this intersection of a bunch of opportunities. We've got some great universities and technology over here. We always have had. We've never exploited the technology to the best. But I think with the combination of the new skill sets coming in, the founders who've been on a journey, you know, we have, I don't know how many unicorns out of Europe now, but, um, you know, phenomenal number of unicorns compared to the past. So we're painting that road for the future. And I think just the availability of funding. So I think we have a, an opportunity like we haven't had before in this industry, in this country. And what we do in the next five to 10 years will really dictate what goes on after that. Because I think that's what happened in Silicon Valley. A lot of the people in Silicon Valley doing some of the bleeding edge stuff didn't grow up there. So we've got to become a hub that people want to really go to because we can build technology companies and we can go and build to scale. I'd love to see a route that we took more than public in the UK. There's a lot to work to do on that, I think. Um, although there's a, you know, there's very few that have gone through that route. But to get them out, get them public, and really scale them from a, a European perspective, I think that would be uh, phenomenal. 
I agree. I agree. And I think that's why we're both doing what we're doing. Totally. You know, trying to pay some of that forward. And, and I couldn't agree more about the universities. You know, I think the quality, this is what really struck me all those years ago when I used to do meetups, the quality of the people and the founders that were coming along to that was just, as you said, at the very, very start of this conversation, you could feel that they wanted to make something substantial rather than just, hey, this will keep me busy for the next five to 10 years and pay the bills along the way. It felt like they really, really wanted to do something ground changing. Well, that's great. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. I think people are getting a lot out of that. Hopefully there's a little nuggets in there for people because I'll be honest, you know, the one of the areas that we get asked a lot about is boards, how should they work, the composition, what data should we report, how should that evolve? And I think you've answered a lot of those questions. So again, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate the opportunity, Andy, and uh, great to see you again. And uh, I hope it's useful uh, to the folks. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.